Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Hello, and welcome from wherever you're listening from to IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio. This is Cyber Jockey Zach Slotnick sitting in for Radio Joe and Cliff Slotnick. Today we have a special treat for you called Flashback Friday. Flashback Friday is a new type of episode for IAQ Radio, featuring the best of our former episodes. Today's pre-recorded guests include Nick Money and Brandon Burton. Please note that this is not a live episode and you will not be able to interactively call in this week. Today's episode is sponsored by Microband Systems, the microbial management company. Check them out on the web at microbandsystems.com. Also, Dryease Products, the first in drying solutions. Check them out at dri-eaz.com. And last but not least, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper of the IAQ industry, on the web at ieconnections.com. Without further ado, our feature presentation. Today's guests are Nick Money, a professor of uh, the Department of Botany at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and author of Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores, A Natural History of Toxic Mold. Nick, are you there? Yep. Hi, Joe. Nick Money here. Perfect. Welcome. Perfect. Thank Good you, to then. talk to you. Welcome. Glad to have you here, Nick. Um, I would like to turn things over for a moment to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, who was the one who found your book and um, contacted you to get on the show here. And I'll tell you, I read it in the last week, and it is fascinating. Great book, and we're looking forward to talking to you. Poor Stachybotrys. It never meant any harm. Those black spores weren't made for flying around. Its spidery colonies evolved to munch outdoors. Other fungi, not humans, were the intended victims for its mycotoxins. One could pronounce similar innocence for the bacteria that cause food poisoning, black widow spiders, even grizzly bears. Although I have acknowledged the mold's nastiness, it's clear that Stachybotrys would have never made mention along these menaces in the media's top ten list of its bad biology without skillful marketing. Attracted to the title, I must confess, I found your book accidentally while searching on eBay. It was a pretty interesting title. You know, as an adult learner, I want to know what's in it for me, and I want this information fast. You know, I must confess that buying a lot of books, which I start and never finish, most of them are about business and science, subjects I admit to needing to know more about. You know, our guest today is Nick Money, Ph.D., Nick Money teaches in the Department of Botany at Miami University of Ohio. He's the author of Mr. Bloomfield's Orchard, The Mysterious World of Mushrooms, Molds, and Mycologists, 
and a new book, The Triumph of Fungi, A Rotten History. Uh, the book we're going to discuss today is Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores, The Natural History of Toxic Mold. And I found the book to be a combination of history, science, practicality, and it was all woven together with humor. Well, welcome, Nick. First of all, what's a mycologist, Nick? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for that wonderful review of the book. Oh, thank uh, you. I can always use a, use a good plug. Um, you know, the fungi aren't the sexiest things to sell on, on, on bookshelves, but... Um, uh, I do my best. Yeah, you've done a wonderful uh, job. Well, what exactly well, is a mycologist? So a mycologist, and there aren't that many of them, I think, in the whole world, is somebody that, that in, a, in a professional setting studies fungi and studies the biology of these organisms. Uh, do you think this is a growth field, a growth industry? How many students, uh, for instance, do you have in a mycology class that you teach? So, so actually, it's a, it's a field in some ways that, that's contracting. I mean, the, the kind of um, organismal biology that I studied years ago in, in, in colleges is not uh, taught on too many campuses today. So that, that's something actually at Miami University that we, we pride ourselves upon is that we actually still cover a, a good deal of this kind of organismal biology, just talking about groups of organisms and how they're related to one another and actually what they do in the natural environment. You know, whether or not anyone's ever told you this or not, but you really have a gift for taking things that are pretty technical and putting them into a term that just any reader, you know, can understand. You know, some of the things that I found fascinating uh, in the book, and one thing in particular, and I don't remember ever hearing this before, and Joe remembered he, hearing it, but he wasn't sure exactly where he heard it, was the fact of, that black mold utilizes a substance known as melanin as a sunscreen. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and there's a lot of these these dark pigmented fungi that, that use, it's not really one compound, there's a whole series of different melanins. I mean, we have melanin in our own skin, it's a somewhat different chemical, but the fungi, or many of them actually do use this as a sunscreen, and they'll actually use it as a natural barrier to, to other, to, to different substances too. It's a, it's a, it's a protective structure that, that forms within the cell wall of these, these dark pigmented fungi, including stachybotrys. Hmm. You know, a quote from your book, high-safe function as microscopic mining devices probing, penetrating, and thoroughly permeate solid materials and extract nutrients in their path. That's kind of a new way for me to look at my athlete's foot anyway. Yeah, and that's certainly what, it, what it's doing. I was just looking at some images the other day, actually, um, of, of fungi penetrating skin and nails, and it, it's really interesting to look at them forming these burrows within, within our own tissues. It's uh, uh, alarming, I guess, certainly if it's your own tissues that these things are, are growing within. Well, speaking of alarming with that, I thought something called apoptosis was even more alarming. What does that word mean? Well, that's that's the technical term. Well, there's another technical term for that, which is programmed uh, cell death, and that's actually a natural part of of, of life. That um, uh, cells within our body and cells within other organisms actually die according to these genetically regulated programs, and that, that's a very very important part of of, of, of development, and it also in sort of day to day housekeeping within the human body. Amazing. You know, one of the things I think was interesting is, you know, we all know that there's two scoops of raisins in a box of raisin bran. I never realized that for every spore that was out there, there could be as many as 300 cell fragments floating around. Yeah, that's, that's the, the result of some really interesting work in the last few, few years that 
um, when you actually do do spore counts, so based upon indoor air sampling, you're only looking at a relatively small fraction of the number of particles that might be present in the, in the air, because when you when you pass air over a fungal colony, so something growing on a on a surface on drywall, for example. It seems, at least according to these studies, that these smaller particles are also getting getting into the air, and of course it's possible that, that, that those particles can get into the uh, uh, nasal passages and, uh, and and the lungs if um, people are in in the uh, in that location. You know, one of the interesting things I thought also in the book was the fact that um, you brought up this theory, and I, I think it may be more than a theory because in the book you were talking about. Uh, discussing this with one of your business colleagues with the fact that certain insects could actually transport mold, including stachybotrys. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly a poss possibility, although there's no um, really clear evidence for this at this, this point. Um, but it, it relates to this wider issue of actually how stachybotrys gets around. So this is the mold that, that um, is most interesting, at least in the courtroom. Uh, and yet it forms these big spores, and they they're formed in these sticky heads. And they're not easily aerosolized. They don't get airborne very easily um, because they're sticky and because they're heavy, relatively speaking. And, and so this is an interesting issue about sort of the, the ecology of the indoor environment and actually how these molds get around, or specifically how stachybotrys gets around, because it's, it's kind of a sluggish thing, not well designed for, for, for moving around in the air. You know, one of the things I thought was interesting in the book also was, were, were the number of history lessons uh, that were in it. You know, one of your quotes, you know, uh, in the beginning there was life. You know, the Bible is unassailably co correct about that. Or, I'm sorry, I, I misquoted it. In the beginning there was no life. The Bible is unassailably correct about that. You know, you went through all these notable facts about Stachybotrys and provided the history of, uh, you know, when it was found, I believe, in Prague and then... Uh, you know, in Russia, killed a bunch of horses. And I thought one of the things that was interesting, and I'm not sure whether or not I got this correct, but, and please correct me, did you say in the book that there is no stachybotrys in the United Kingdom? Um, somebody told told me this um, recently that in, in some survey they'd actually never found this in, in their studies of um, air sampling within homes. But since then I've come across reports. I mean, you do see it listed in, in these in mold surveys. But it's certainly something that's not as common as it seems to be in, in our homes. So I, I can't tell you that it's absent from, from, from homes in, in, in Britain. In fact, there's evidence now uh, to counter that, but it doesn't seem to be as be as common as we uh, as it is in in uh, the uh, lower 48. Hmm. Interesting. I think one of the things that I, I liked in the book was uh, the manner in which you chronicled, uh, you know, and I, and I, I quote from the book: "By the late 1990s, the media had elevated ubiquitous molds to the status of life-threatening microorganisms, whose appearance transformed homes, schools, and workplaces into toxic environments." Buildings needed to be tested, and toxic ones needed to be cleaned. These tasks were embraced by industrial hygienists who had dealt previously with IAQ problems before mold hit the headlines, and new job titles were printed on business cards. Mold inspector, mold contractor, mold remediator, a new industry was born. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, there was just a frenzy of interest in this. I think in the early uh, early part of this uh, this millennium, I suppose I should say, shouldn't I? So um, after the um, record, what was it, thirty two million dollar judgment in Texas uh, that related to mold contamination of a home close to Austin. 
Yeah, in, in, incredible, the uh, Melinda Ballard case. That's right, Melinda Ballard's him. Uh, one of the things that you've done in the book is you've provided some guidance to homeowners and also to remedial practitioners alike, and I'm sure that we might get some discussion on this in the future. Uh, your opinion that spore counts are next to useless for assessing many indoor mold problems, and unless a mold problem is likely to lead to a lawsuit, you're not convinced that anyone should pay a contractor to collect air samples and make moisture measurements. Uh, how would you suggest people that are going into these homes and inspecting ones gather their data? Are you a believer in surface sampling instead? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very, very complicated issue. It would take us longer than, you know, a few minutes to really, really get into into this. But I think that a lot of air sampling data have been misused, especially in, in the courtroom. Um, sometimes they're useful. If, if you can actually conduct some air, air sampling and show the, that you've got a much, much higher concentration of spores in the indoor air versus the outdoor air, then that tells you that maybe you've got a source of of, of mold within the home that's, that, that's getting airborne, certainly you know, sort of supports that hypothesis. Um, but as I said, I think these data are sometimes um, overused and too much, much is made of them. Surface sampling is certainly, certainly important, but I think most mold inspectors and IAQ specialists have, are also pretty good at just going into a home and figuring out pretty quickly if there's mold, growing, visible mold. Uh, and a lot of it, and, and whether or not that home is re going to require some kind of professional remediation. I mean, at, at this level, mycology really isn't anything close to, to rocket science. It's just, uh, uh, you know, it's alarmingly obvious when you go into a home if it's got a really serious microbiological problem. Um, there's a statement in your book, and I'd like to know whether you stand by that statement, and the statement is the mere identification of stachybotrys in a home doesn't mean the residents are in danger. Yeah, that's, absolute, that's absolutely true. And in fact, um, in the book, I talk about doing a, a, some mold sampling in, in, in my own home that's about 12 years old at, at this point and hasn't got any uh, water problem. Um, but uh, subsequently, I did find stachybotrys in my home. We've got a, a plant stand with a big plant pot on it, and my wife tends to overwater the plant, in my humble opinion. Hopefully, she isn't going to listen to this. Mine, mine, not, mine neither. <laughs> but um, sure enough, underneath that, that pot, you can pick up stachybotrys, and um, you can see these jet black colonies. Um, you know, You can get close to identifying them without a microscope. They're really pretty distinctive. So... Um, and certainly I wouldn't recommend evacuating my house or anything there just because of the mere presence of this organism. Oh, go ahead. Yes, Nick, this is Joe Hughes. I, Hi, Joe. I, I, hello, and uh, welcome. I, this has been fascinating, and I had a few quick questions I wanted to ask. Going back to what Cliff just asked, I did get the impression, however, that you don't, you're not a minimalist either in that you do feel there may be some issues with respect to too much stachybotrys within a home or too much mold in general rather than focusing on stachybotrys. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think, think most physicians will, will agree that molds can, can stimulate allergic symptoms. So if you've got a lot of mold spores in a home, um, anybody that suffers from asthma or hay fever, uh, other, other allergies, you know, may have their symptoms exacerbated by the uh, by the presence of mold um, so that that's the first point to make um, in terms of looking at stachybotrys specifically I still think there are some interesting studies out there and some unsolved cases that um, 
give one cause for concern. So if, if there's a lot of growth of stachybotrys in a particular home, I, th I think that really is something that, that deserves some further study and some, some caution. Um, so the most celebrated cases are those then out of um, Cleveland, Ohio in the 1990s and these um, infants that suffered from uh, lung bleeding. And that's really a, an unsolved medical mystery, I think, at this point. There's some people that stand by the the claim that this was as a result of exposure to stachybotrys and other people that, that really refute this. So, um, I mean, it is a nasty organism, and, and certainly if there's a lot of it around in, in one's home, I think, I think one, you know, should be prudent and use some caution and, and actually uh, seek to eradicate it. That's, that was one of several interesting uh, points that I, I picked up in the book. I guess my, one of the first questions I had was, how did you come up for the title for the book? And it's Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores, A Natural History of Toxic Mold. There's some wording in there that some of the um, industry gurus, for lack of a better uh, term, would find a you know a bit alarming, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. So the, a natural history of toxic mold really speaks to what's in the book. The, the carpet monsters um, part of the, the the title comes from my own childhood encounters with with mold. I was a pretty severe asthmatic as a kid, and uh, uh, began to fantasize that there were actually these monsters in the carpeting and so forth that were causing me to feel so lousy and trying and stop stopping me from breathing so that that's part of it and i do talk about the uh allergic effects of, of fungal spores and uh so what the other part of the title the killer spores i mean certainly that's the way that the media uh presented this um in in the earlier um earlier years in this this decade i think well especially surrounding the melinda ballard case i mean 60 minutes and 2020 and so forth had uh uh, expose is about mold and, and suggesting this was the you know the worst thing ever to happen to the United States. But uh, so that's where I, I uh, get the killer spores uh, idea from. That's that's interesting, and I'd like to let our listeners know, and uh, especially those of you that are associated with the uh, investigation and remediation of. Uh, microbial issues that um, the book is really not the typical scare tactic book that you might think of. It's really a very well-researched and thorough uh, review of the first mycology and then some of the history of the particular cases like the um, case of the problems that we had in Cleveland after the flooding with the potential for pulmonary hemorrhage and uh, then a discussion of the Ballard case, and then following that, you've got some other very interesting information about other types of molds that people don't always think of as molds in the last chapter. Could you ex talk to us a little bit about the dry rot and the wet rot that you discuss in the final chapter? Yeah, I mean, as a mycologist, I find these other fungi that grow in the indoor environment really um, very interesting. In fact, I've had a number of um, photographs sent to me uh, by email this year uh, of a fungus. It's a, it's a cup fungus. It's a thing called Pazizer that forms these, these brown um, uh, cups, usually about an inch, inch across. And I don't know, because we've had a lot of rain this, this summer, at least in the Midwest, 
Um, I think this thing's cropped up uh, in, in a number of homes, but uh, this is really pretty alarming when you look at it in bathrooms and you see whole walls covered with uh, with this particular fungus. And it probably doesn't cause any any uh, particularly negative health effects, um, but it's certainly unsightly and something that, that most homeowners are going to want to get rid of. Um, the other thing I talk about in the book, though, is this uh, the phenomenon of dry rot, which is... Um, particularly a problem in on the uh, the west coast um uh Los Angeles and so forth where they've seen a lot of cases of this uh fungus that uh destroys the the wood frame of a home even even under construction it's really pretty interesting cases and there's one particular contractor out there that's uh, really specializes in uh, uh dealing with this problem I would encourage anyone who is interested in that to pick up a copy of Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores and take a, a good look at that last chapter, if not the entire book. The last thing I wanted to ask was, I, as I read this and all of the research that went into it and sort of following up on what we just discussed, how long did it take you to research and write this book? I think it was a, it was about a year's work from from start to finish to really research that, and I'm a fairly swift writer, so um, I was yeah, it's, a, it's about a year's work. And you um, have another one now that is coming out or is out. That's right. right, it's just just come out. It's just available on on Amazon for anybody that's interested, and it, it's um, that really deals with epidemic fungal diseases of um, trees and crop plants. Um, so this is really the field of plant pathology that I'm covering in in that book. Interesting. Well, the last thing that I had was a um, kind of interesting section of the book where you compared uh, Stachybotrys versus Staphylococcus aureus, and I hope I got the pronunciation right with my mycologist on the line. Could you uh, maybe review a little bit about what you wrote on those Two organisms. Yeah, I think there was um, so there was there was an interesting study um, where, where they compared the um, the total number of, of of injuries that could be tracked to Stachybotrys exposure, and then compared that to um, the, the effects of other microorganisms. Okay, and the point there of that study was to suggest that even in sort of the worst case scenario, that these these cases of lung bleeding. In, in Cleveland had been caused by Stachybotrys, that there are plenty of other microorganisms that, that we're, we're exposed to that cause you know, far greater injury and far more deaths each year. And so the, the point of that study was to really show that the, the, the media frenzy then surrounding the Ballard case was, really was a frenzy, and it was something that, that, that really was, uh, you know, the concern about indoor molds was really out of control, I think, for a while. And I do think that things have settled down more at this this point. Um, there seems to be a more measured approach to dealing with indoor indoor mold and indoor mold problems. And um, so I think that's uh, to the industry's credit that that, we, that we've gotten to this position today. Well, that's very encouraging. As members of the industry, uh, Cliff and I both are association. Uh, members and I'm on the board of one of the uh, largest associations in the country that deals with indoor air quality association. Cliff is closely involved with several and it's encouraging to hear someone like yourself that has the background you do in mycology uh, to 
to say that we uh, seem to be headed in, in the right direction. And uh, with that, what I'd like to do, if um, we still have other questions but we have to move on, is there's a chance that we may have you join us in the future? No, I'd love to do this. It's really interesting talking to uh, people actually in the, in the industry rather than other, other mycologists. Um, this is what I really do as a consultant often in the courtroom is to try and just to, you know give some measured uh, treatment to this subject and explain to the jury really what fungi are and, and, and when they are a matter of concern and, and when they're not. And uh, I think it's important to get away from sort of just these, these kind of alarmist tactics that uh, prevailed for some years. And hopefully on the next show we'll have some more interaction. We've got quite a few people listening in, but not too many uh, calling or sending instant messages right now. But we're just getting started. That will change, Nick. Uh, Sounds very good. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, and we will look forward to talking to you again in the future. Let's just tell everyone again how to get the book. Uh, Would you suggest that they do a search for you, Nick, Uh, your name, Nicholas P. Money, M-O-N-E-Y, on uh, Google, and they'll be able to purchase it from Amazon. Is that the source yep, that you'd recommend? That's, that's probably the best best sources to just go to Amazon.com and type in carpet monsters and killer spores, or type in my name, and they'll they'll come across the page for that book. Well, I wanted you to know that I gave your book a five star rating. You can't get any better than that. I loved <laughs> it. And uh, what I'll do is I, I might mail it to you and get you to autograph it for me. I'd appreciate that. Well, very good. Very All right. good. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye for now. Bye. Take care. Bye. Just a reminder that today's episode is sponsored by Microband Systems on the web at microbandsystems.com. Also, Dryease Products on the web at dri-eaz.com. And last but not least, Indoor Environment Connections on the web at ieconnections.com. Next up, guest Brandon Burke. Because we've got moisture. Yeah. Moisture in Throughout the land you'll hear the old refrain It's moisture, by God we'll take it We may never have this much of it again But uh, right now what we'd like to do is bring in our second guest for, the t- for today's program, Brandon Burton. Brandon, are you out there? Ah, uh, yes, I am. Good morning. Uh, well, good afternoon, actually. Uh, yeah, well, actually, we're worldwide, Brandon, so we just say good day. That's good day. Uh, we have people listening, actually, and we've had people email us from Australia and England, uh, England other places around the world, so it's great. Brandon is the technical education manager for DryEase. He is also an approved IICRC instructor in the categories of applied structural drying water damage restoration. He has invested hundreds of hours instructing water damage restoration professionals in the principles of drying. He is also a published author in the field, has served as a chapter chair and editor for the IICRC's S-500 Standard Committee, and he's also a member of the ASCR Restoration Council. And I always get this ringing in the back of my head from one of my excellent students that say, you use too many acronyms, Joe. IICRC is the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, and ASCR is the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration. Brandon has been with DryEase since 1995, working in the areas of technical service, product development, 
research, manufacturing, and sales, and during his tenure with Dryese has participated in numerous large restoration projects, assisting contractors across the United States. He's also a speaker through Toastmasters International, and we're really looking forward to having you here. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Thank you very much. I guess you have a dehumidifier in your own home. <laughs> Actually, yes, I do. Okay, I just didn't want to talk to any guest that didn't believe in his own product. What, <laughs> what's the word dehumidify mean? Well, you know, a lot of people misinterpret the term dehumidify. Now, if you look at it from the textbook standpoint, dehumidify means to reduce the air's moisture content. And there's really lots of ways to tackle that definition. You know, whether you do it mechanically by physically removing water from an airstream and returning that same airstream or simply grabbing a separate air mass that has, you know, less moisture in it. It can actually mean a couple of different things. Well, hang on a second there, Brandon. We're on the radio here. Let me... Let me go back for one one moment. We kind of have to visualize this. Uh, could you go back over there for just give me a little more of a visual on what we're talking about? Absolutely. You know, all all air that we deal with naturally is it's going to have some moisture in it. Okay. You know, it's an important component of air. And when we say dehumidify, if you just kind of break that word down, basically we're talking about taking humidity and making it less. And there. Are are a couple of ways to make that happen. You know, you can take air and use a refrigerant dehumidifier, a desiccant dehumidifier. You can use a system that literally pulls moisture out of that air. That would be dehumidify in probably its simplest sense. But you can also simply grab air from somewhere else that is less humid, that's drier, and replace air that's more humid. That's another form of dehumidification. Similar to what happened here in uh, two years back, I believe it was, we had some really bad flooding, and after that there had, there was very low humidity for the next two weeks, fortunately for the people who were dried. I guess opening the windows and running some fans and bringing that nice dry air into that wet environment was probably a good idea. It's a better idea than not doing that, absolutely. <laughs> okay, great. Cliff? Uh, Brandon, what's special about the dehumidifiers that are used by structural drying professionals compared to you know, the dehumidifiers that they could buy at a, on the retail level? Well, there's, there's a few things there, Cliff. The, the first and most important is something that our industry has had to learn over the last 25, 30 years is that dehumidifiers come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and for lots of different applications. And the standard homeowner is going to purchase something that's designed to you know, control a space like a basement or a cellar area where you really don't have a massive amount of moisture present. You just have you know, a little bit of uh, kind of that cool, damp environment and very, very little water in the air, just some water in the air. So they're not really designed for you know, a high capacity. They're also designed kind of like your refrigerator. They're designed for you to stick it in a corner somewhere, plug it in, and let it run. They're not designed for you to throw it in the back of a truck, uh, you know, take a trip down the interstate, you know, a few speed bumps and potholes later, haul it out of the back of your truck and, and bump it up a flight of stairs and repeat that process every week for several years. They're just not designed for that. They don't have the ability to protect all their internal components. And uh, you know anybody who's <laughs> who's ever used our product, regardless of how much you care for it, you know stuff happens, and dehumidifiers 
we've had dehumidifiers fall out of the back of, of vehicles because somebody forgot to latch the back door, and they need to be able to survive that kind of abuse and really be portable and be maneuverable. At the same time, they've got to have the capacity. You know, when you're drying a structure that has had an abnormal water intrusion, water's come in because a, a pipe is broken, a river is flooded, you're talking about a massive amount of water hundreds and hundreds of times the amount of moisture than, that you would be dealing with in just a, a basement or a cellar environment that was a little damp. So you have to have the capacity to keep up. You know, the whole goal there is to get the humidity in check and in control rapidly, kind of like an ER room and trying to stabilize a patient. You've got to do it quickly. Now, my understanding is that, you know, one of the first things you do is get rid of as much of the liquid water as possible, and there's numerous ways you can do that. But there's also some role in promoting air movement during structural drying. Can you explain how that assists in the process, or am I off base on that, Brandon? Not off base at all. You know, what's interesting there is that the air mover is the simplest piece of equipment that a drying contractor will use, but at the same time, it's the most misunderstood. You know, a lot of people think that by blowing air at a wet surface, you're going to dry that wet surface, and that's not necessarily true. An air mover uh, is kind of an interesting conflict in what a lot of us believe. An air mover doesn't dry anything. It really doesn't. Uh, the, the air mover plays two critical roles in the drying effort. First of all, you need the, the air that can dry the surface, that's warm enough, that's dry enough. You need that air to be where the water is. And the air movement is a vehicle, a transport mechanism, if you will, to vehicle to put that air there. So that's one real critical role that it plays. The second role is very similar. When you have a wet surface, water is evaporating. You know, it's trying to come up into the air mass around it, there the air around it. And as it does that, an air mover sweeps that evaporating moisture away. So it becomes kind of like the blender in the environment, taking the humid air at the surface and getting it up and taking the dry air that's around you and putting it at the surface. It's a vehicle. Probably the best way to describe that. How can a client be assured that the drying equipment used by a restoration contractor is performing as claimed? That's a very interesting question, Cliff. There's, you know, the unfortunate circumstance, and I can speak well to this because I, you know, I work for a manufacturer. The unfortunate circumstance that that can happen is, you know, when you try to figure out how big a dehumidifier is or how, how effective an air mover is, you need specifications, right? You need numbers that say something to you about what the actual piece of equipment delivers. And, you know, there's there's an, a lot of different ways to get those numbers. You know, if you wanted to figure out... I guess you could make them up. <laughs> yeah, you, you could. That's one way you could do it. Uh, and unfortunately, not, not by too far of a stretch from that statement, you know, that, that can happen very easily. Because when you're thinking about a, uh, a dehumid, well, let's just use cars as an example. Okay, if I were to purchase an automobile and I was worried about gas mileage and and the efficiency that car is going to have in consuming fuel, you know, a manufacturer could say that this vehicle gets 40 miles to the gallon. Right. Okay, uh, if that's all I have. I have no idea really how they figured that out. You know, was that going downhill with the wind behind you at <laughs> 65 miles an hour? Or, you know, is that in town driving? I mean, what, what example, what, what criteria did you set out when you, when you published this rating? 
Well, with a dehumidifier, an air mover, uh, and even things like you know filtration systems for like HEPA filters, all these things, unfortunately, unless you really get specific about how the testing was done, those specifications are almost irrelevant. So there are some ways that the consumer can find out whether or not those specifications are real. And there's a couple of real specific examples, and I would very highly urge any consumer, and for that matter, any insurer or anybody else who's interested in the effectiveness of the restoration work to check these two things out. One, make sure that the piece of equipment is UL listed or ETL or something similar, where you've got a third-party uh, a professional organization that does testing that is looking at that piece of equipment and making sure things like amp draw, for example, are accurate. You know, if you've got a UL listing on that serial tag, you know the amp draw on that piece of equipment is not something that the manufacturer, you know, put on there because, uh, you know, they were running it in the lowest load, easiest conditions. That's so the highest amp drop. UL Underwriters Underwriters Laboratory. laboratory yes, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, I, no, I, and that's I, the most common. I suspect it's a global manufacturer because your company sells this equipment all over the world. You not only have to meet what the standards are in the United States, but you would have mm -hmm. to meet the standards in Canada, in Europe, uh, Asia, wherever you sell your equipment. Isn't that correct? Yeah, and as Joe said, you know, it's our serial labels are the king of acronyms uh, because we've got all those things on there. You know, everything from you know your CE to your CUL to your UL, and you know, some of those are in foreign languages, so I won't even try to pronounce them. But it's important that those are on there. And what, what was the second thing? I'm sorry, we didn't mean to cut into you. Said there were two things that the yes. consumer could do. Okay. The other that's real important in our industry is AHIM. And AHEM is the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers. And this is another really good third-party certification or accreditation that is important, especially on two pieces of equipment. It's important on your dehumidifiers because there is a set standard for how the water removal, which is really the size of the dehumidifier, how that water removal is tested for and calculated. And also on your air scrubbers. You know, when you're looking at something for filtration and removing, you know, potential contaminants from the air, particles from the air, AHEM has a, a very set standard for how that is tested as well. Uh, now, here's the, the, the catch in as a consumer or as, you know, any interested party in the work being done, you want to make sure that the numbers just don't say, you know, an, an AHEM water removal next to the dehumidifier. You want to make sure the specs are AHEM certified. AHEM Certified. What was that yes. acronym again, Brent? Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers. That's a new one for me. Even. Home yes. Appliance Manufacturers. We all learn on this show. All right. That's excellent. Well, what about, um, let's see, how, how is it, uh, can drying equipment be used also when we're looking at new construction and and people were concerned about uh, whether or not the building's ready for finished materials. Absolutely. In fact, you know, the application of the standard equipment that we have in our industry and in new construction provides a lot of different benefits. But just primarily for the, the area that you've just hit on, ensuring that you're not trapping excess moisture in the building materials during the construction process adds a tremendous amount of benefit. 
A, you know, if, if you have a lot of structural components that are sitting outside, they're exposed to the elements, and especially, you know, in the, the Washington State area out here, our buildings get rained on a bit while they throw them up. You know, it's it's a good idea to get rid of that moisture. You know, as as we heard on the with the first guest, you know, you really can't guarantee that you're not going to have a microbial problem if water exists. If you don't get that moisture out of those materials, they're going to start breaking down, degrading, and microbial growth, mold growth is just a, a part of that mechanism. So you've got to get the moisture out of those materials. And we're actually we're seeing a lot of a lot of requests for information on that particular uh, area of construction here recently. What when you say we have to determine that the moisture content, I'll use that fancy terminology, I guess, is appropriate. How do we make sure? That, I mean, I, is there equipment, special equipment that people will need? Do you bring in a third party? What do you recommend? Well, there are a couple of approaches there. I'll, I'll give you my recommendation, but also try to highlight the fact that you know, there's room for other ways to make it happen, too. You know, we have an industry out there of restoration contractors whom are trained and specialized in dealing with moisture in structural building materials that is not there because of a long, ongoing problem that just you have an excess amount of moisture, get rid of it, verify it's gone, and then move on. And they're very good at that. And I think that industry can serve the needs of the construction industry very well. So I don't know that it's a third party beyond the restoration contractor that's out there. You can call them the third party, if you will. Uh, but beyond that entity, I don't know that a, another third party is really necessary. Having said that, you know, there may be room for, you know, especially to give another benefit to the contractor building the structure and to the consumer purchasing the structure, there may be room for some sort of a certificate that says that this work has been done, the building was sealed up and closed up while it had the right amount of moisture. There may be some value in something like that. And whether that contractor provides that or not is you know, something that, that you could talk about. But there could be some value there to really add to the value of the home, just like we have, you know, green home, et cetera, some other things that are out there that add an additional value to the consumer purchasing the property. Now, does that moisture content, that does that vary by areas in the country? For instance, you're in a very, you know, damp area up in Washington. We get quite a bit of rain here in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. to, you know, is it different by areas of the country? I, I've heard that. I'm not sure if I um, know enough about the issue to say for sure that it is. There is going to be a variation depending on, you know, not only what state you're in, but even what part of the state you're in and what elevation you're at and et cetera and so on. Lots of things are going to influence the the normal amount of moisture in a building material of, of virtually every type of building material, not just wood. So, yeah, that's going to vary. But the nice thing is, is that even though those numbers vary, the amount of moisture necessary to support you know, fungal growth and, and rot, et cetera, that information does not vary. You know, so there are still some numbers out there that if you truly understand, you know, measuring the amount of moisture you've gone through that training, et cetera, there are some numbers that you can use almost across the board. You know, I've gone to your company's website and looked at the variety of things that you sell that go way beyond just dehumidifiers and air movement equipment. So I suppose dryies must think that there are some other things that are important for people to use. Could you comment on some of this additional equipment that should be used? Absolutely, Cliff. There, there's here. Kind of run through the whole range. These are the categories of types of equipment that are really critical 
to any drying contractor. Obviously, you've got dehumidification. You need something to control uh, humidity in a space. Then you've got air movement. And in air movement, you need to be able to apply the warm, dry air and the variety of surfaces and the variety of, of hidden cavities that we're going to encounter in structures. So there's a range of air movement that's necessary. Then, because you're blowing air everywhere and dusting a bunch of surfaces as you do it, you need to have the ability to control particulate and dust. You need filtration. You need to have not only filtration on your dehumidifiers to protect them, but filtration for the air in the structure to protect, to protect all of your other contents and occupants, depending on the, especially depending on the type of structure you're in. Then you must have an array of instrumentation. You need to be able to measure the effect of your drying equipment in that environment on humidities, on temperatures, and on moisture contents or moisture levels in materials. You've got to be able to measure all of that. So that must be there as well. Then you need to be able to remove water physically. As Joe had mentioned early in this uh, particular session, you have to be able to get rid of water in its liquid physical form. So you've got to have physical extraction devices. Then you have to have something to control microbial growth when it's necessary. You, know, you need to have antimicrobials, biocides. So a lot of different categories there of, of different tools and equipment that need to be available. Yeah, speaking of antimicrobials, uh, is it true that the plastic used to rotationally mold all drying equipment is the same? Absolutely not. Now, there's a, a few things that vary in the materials used uh, in rotational molding. It's the technical name for a process used to uh, create the plastic housings on the outside of your air movers and even on some dehumidifiers. Uh, there are a few things that vary. Most significantly, uh, though, plastic gives you the ability to put a lot of additives in place, things that you know control the, the ability for the unit to continue looking good over a long period of time and also to help inhibit microbial growth. We actually put a, a microband product in our plastic housings as an example. I guess as a, to clarify, that's not the same microband product? No, it's a Is different that? company, but, so, you know, we were... We, we saw the need and put the two people together and kind of threw rose petals at the wedding, but I didn't get a check <laughs> from either one of them. Still waiting for his check. Yeah, uh, yeah. Story of our life, Cliff. Yeah, that's all right. No, but I think that it was a, a bold move that they made in terms of being able to you know, raise the bar in the industry because this equipment goes into a lot of sensitive areas. It could be used in a hospital. It's not always clean between. It should be, but it, you know, it's not always cleaned. And I think it it's a great opportunity to protect people's homes. Yeah, and that's that's one of the concerns that we have, you know, as as a contractor is you want to make sure you're bringing in to an environment a piece of equipment that that should be there and not bringing the last five jobs with you. Right. You know, so not that the antimicrobial in the housing in and of itself does all that work for you, but it helps. You know, it helps. You still need to maintain and clean your equipment, but the, any added measure is going to, it's just, it's further due diligence to make sure you're doing the right thing. Brandon, what do you think are the greatest areas where the industry needs improvement today in terms of practices? That, that's a very, very open question with lots of answers, Cliff. I'll probably take, the I'll most, take them. <laughs> <laughs> probably, you know, probably the most important response to that question in terms of practices I'll focus first on, on the guys actually in the field doing the work. We need more training and more education. You know, it doesn't matter what else we, we know in the industry. If we're not training our people on it, we're not practicing it, 
or not becoming proficient with it, then it doesn't turn into an industry strength. So training is critical. You know, people need to be making a routine effort in their in their own businesses, uh, from not only just from the restorer standpoint, but everybody involved in this industry. We need to continue our training and development. So that's probably number one. Uh, from there, you know, we'd mentioned a little bit of you know the specifications, the numbers on equipment. That's another real critical one. And let me just give you a real brief example on this. You know, if a manufacturer says that a piece of equipment removes 100 pints of water at an AHEM condition, but they never certify it. They just they take a, a pre-production unit that's optimized, and they find out what water they got out of it. They test it five times and take the biggest number and start publishing that. A restorer is going to go install that piece of equipment thinking that that's what he's getting from it. In reality, he's getting you know maybe 80 pints out of it of water, not 100. That's 20%. Imagine the the effect of that extra water that's not being removed. Now, in turn, bill the insurance company for a dehumidifier that is removing 100 pints, and really it's only removing 80. You, know, you can think of all the implications that that has, and that's happening in the industry today. So that's an area you know that that I'm you know taking some responsibility for there we as manufacturers need to set a much better standard and precedence for the information that we publish in the industry because people count on having reliable information and if they don't have it then they can't make reliable decisions Brendan I've got a text message from a Jerry Walker of mm-hmm. New York City he'd like to know what is a desiccant what is a desiccant it's Good question. A desiccant dehumidifier, the easiest way to understand what that machine is, is it's a magnetic dehumidifier for moisture. It's using just some really easy to think of uh, analogies there. Instead of using a cold surface like a refrigerant dehumidifier does, like a soda can that's cold sitting on your counter on a hot humid day, a refrigerant dehumidifier just condenses water on a cold surface. What a desiccant does is it uses, and here's a technical phrase here, but it uses a low chemical vapor pressure. Basically, it's like a magnet for moisture, and it attracts water to its surface. So you don't have to get something really cold and create condensation. Uh, The benefit behind that is that if you imagine a magnet going into a bucket of thumbtacks, it doesn't matter what else is going on. If there are thumbtacks in that bucket, the magnet's going to get a thumbtack out of that bucket. So a dehumidifier doesn't, a desiccant doesn't care how much water is in the air. No matter what, it's going to be pulling some moisture out of that air, which gives it the ability to operate in extremely low humidity conditions and still pull more water. You know, it's it's like the uh, the low gear, the compound low gear on a large truck. That's what a desiccant is. It's going to keep moving, not pulling massive amounts of water, but it's going to keep moving no matter how how heavy the load is. It's always going to give you some performance. And are these most homeowners? I'm assuming do not they purchase the refrigerant type? Is that accurate or absolutely okay? The, and actually, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little caveat on it. Most homeowners are going to purchase the refrigerant type, but believe it or not, one of the most common dehumidifiers purchased across the entire globe is, is a kind of a variation on the desiccant dehumidifier. It's that little packet of silica gel you get with your shoes or a camera or a piece of electronics. That's a desiccant dehumidifier sitting in there, uh, that little tiny packet. Um, 
A lot of people also buy those little uh, devices they put in their RVs, little plastic, uh, usually black, uh, that slowly collect moisture in a little tray underneath them. That's calcium chloride. Yeah. Yes, calcium chloride. It's a different kind of desiccant, uh, but it is a desiccant dehumidifier. If we were to ask you for a uh, a, a trade secret, where, where, where could we pick up a little trade secret from you? We always like to try and pick the brains of the experts out there. I'll give you more than one. I'll give you lots. All right. Uh, two two trade secrets, uh, places for trade secrets I'm going to give you. One, uh, we've got on our website, under our resources link, you can go into an archive of technical papers. Uh, we have you know seven instructors now. We've had as many as 13 instructors on staff. We're the leading provider of education in the industry today. And every one of them has written a number of articles for the organization. Uh, you're drawing on more than 500 years total experience when you, when you sort through that, that list of, of articles. So go to our website and check out some of those articles. They're loaded with some great trade secrets. And then the other is that uh, we just uh, published a new book. The New Guide to Restorative Drying. And uh, some of the listeners may recognize that name because we published a book a number of years ago under a similar name. Uh, it's been updated. Uh, we've published it as current with new industry standards, uh, current with all the new technologies, covers everything from thermal imaging and, and, and the like all the way through to uh, you know some of these new heat and air exchange drying systems. So everything current in the industry today is there. And that's the new guide to restorative drying just published we've, this year. We've got one here that you were kind enough to send us, which we really appreciate. And I noticed that in the back of it there's a disc. Can you tell me about this disc? Yeah. Uh, we Well, I personally and, and a, uh, a gentleman from a local university developed an, a Microsoft Excel template. All right, Microsoft Excel, I'm going to give you my quick short story with Excel. You know, I hate doing math personally. I, I do not enjoy math. You hate I it, know. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Cliff, we may be able to use you as a better example then. <laughs> but, you know, I hate doing math, but the, the, here's the reality of business. In business, you've got to crunch some numbers. You just have to. Well, Excel loves to do math. So my short formula is I love Microsoft Excel because it does the math for me. You know, with anything that you've got to do to track numbers, track data, Excel will always be able to do it better. So what I did is I sat down and I put some information together in Microsoft Excel, set up the, the formats, the templates, made it look pretty, so that you put in a couple of numbers, and Microsoft Excel does all the documentation and calculation for you. We call it Restoration Project Manager. It manages a number of different types of data from the job. Uh, we've had uh, a lot of our instructors here all contribute pieces to this, like uh, you know, Darren Hudima, for example, and some other instructors. Uh, but it has a component that will track your overall job costs, your, elect your electrical consumption, the equipment used, the moisture contents in your materials over time. It'll graph all the information out so that you can hand it to the adjuster and say, you know, look at the pretty picture, down is good and see that we were going down the whole time. makes a great communication tool uh, and a great record-keeping tool. Something you'll be proud to take the court if you ever had to go there, which is always my measure of effectiveness in documentation. You know, when you're done documenting a job, would you be proud taking that to court? Because someday you might have to. Okay, so that's what's on and the CD. that's also available on your website, through the website? It is not, actually. Oh. Uh, the, we only offer that program. We used to only offer it if you came to us for our four-day uh, hands-on water damage school, which cost you a thousand bucks. So now we also offer it if you purchase the book for only one fifty. Okay, and how do we? How do they get the book? 
Uh, they go through a local distributor. Uh, we have uh, 140-ish distributors across the United States. We have distributors in Europe, uh, the UK, Australia, Canada, uh, even in uh, Germany. So we have distributors all over the place. Just contact your distributor, whoever you buy your dry use equipment from, and ask for the new guide to restorative drying. Yeah, it's, a, it's an outstanding book. It's, it's a hardback book. Uh, it's got what seems like hundreds and hundreds of photographs and very, very well done. It, it seems like quite an investment of time, energy, and money uh, was put into this book. While we still have you here, Brandon, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you have something you wanted to add? Not myself. No. I, I was just going to say, yeah, that we're we're pretty proud of it. All it right. Us, uh, it took us a little better than a year. I, I wanted to check and see if um, Dr. Wow is still on the line there. Uh, <laughs> I'm we still here. Okay, Dieter, uh, welcome <laughs> back. We always like to check in with our technical expert here. You mentioned research. Oh, I research. learned a lot of things. <laughs> Any, uh, anything you'd like to comment on or ask a question about, Dieter? Uh, no, well, not really. I mean, um, I, I learned a couple of things that I didn't, and as you did. <laughs> yes, we all did. And, um, you know, there are, uh, how should I say, you know, in the old days, water and fire restoration was a dirty job. There's a heck of a lot of science behind it. And as it was pointed out, it behooves you to know about those things, apply um, proven techniques and and engineering principles to the overall job. And if you do that, well, then you are as successful as uh, PDG and the people who know about it and uh, do it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dieter. And before we uh, before we leave, we always have our last few questions we'd like to ask Brandon. First of all, any tips for consumers who may be listening? We've already hit a few, but uh, maybe you have something else that we could give to our consumer listeners. Yeah, most important tip that I would leave behind for the listeners is you know, a little little quote that I from John Wooden that I love to share with students in classrooms. And it's just uh, just everybody needs to remember that it's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. <laughs> yeah. Boy, isn't that a good I one? may have to live your life it. by it. Can I borrow that? <laughs> Absolutely. I borrowed it from John Wooden. So <laughs> Okay, it's what you learn. Okay, we'll get that on the uh recorded version here now. Is there anything we missed that you would like to add? No, you know, we really hit on probably some of the most significant uh, things going on in the industry today between education and, and, and reliable information from manufacturers, you know, a lot of the real hot things in our industry today. So uh, I don't think so. I think we covered it all very well. How can our listeners contact you and contact your company? Uh, I'll give you the same information that uh, that Sean had given. You know, the best thing to do is probably go to our website at www.dryeaz.com. And all of my contact information is there. All of our other instructors' contact information is there. Uh, it's a great place to go if, you're, if you've got a technical question as well because we've got a, a really good uh, resource library there. I like that use of the terminology hyphen. I've, I've hyphen. always used dash. I'll be coming. We'll work on that, Brandon. I'll have to fix that on the next uh, spot we do. Yeah, it sounds a little more fancy. Yeah, it does, and uh, I, it certainly sounds like uh, we know what we're talking about. I'm going to be Cliff hyphen Slotnik from now on. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great having you on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll bring you back again sometime to talk a little bit more about drying and products for drying and I'm sure you also get into other 
types of uh, products as well. And um, Absolutely. We didn't get a chance to talk about those today, but we'll love to have you back. Thanks well, thank again, Well, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. I enjoyed it. Thank you very Super much. Great. Bye-bye. Today's episode was brought to you by Microband Systems on the web at microbandsystems.com. Also, Dry East Products on the web at dri-eaz.com. Last but not least, Indoor Environment Connections on the web at ieconnections.com. This has been another IAQ Radio production.